Well, good morning. We're going to be continuing in 2 Timothy this morning, so if you could open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, still in chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 8. Last week, we started this series through 2 Timothy by pointing out a couple things that I want to mention this morning, namely that this is Paul's farewell address to Timothy. And so naturally, because it's Paul's farewell address, there's going to be um, some very strong and emotional things that, that, that Paul is trying to impart to Timothy and to those who uh, would be in ministry for the gospel. And by ministry for the gospel, I do not mean uh, pastors and elders. I don't mean missionaries in faraway lands. I mean ministers of the gospel are those who are saved and have been given the great commission as the mission for their lives. Being ministers of the gospel is also living out the gospel Right? A lot of times I'm going to be saying this morning a preaching of the gospel, and what I mean by a preaching of the gospel is a preaching with not just our words, but with our life. Our life, as well as our words, is meant to preach the gospel. We are heralds of the good news. Um, and one of the things we, we talked about last week was this promised life in Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of this promised life, the effect was faith on fire. Faith on fire. And, and like I said and decided in the middle of the sermon last week, faith on fire was going to be our theme through Second Timothy. Paul is concerned for the church to continue with faith on fire. That's why Paul says, fan into flame uh, your faith. And so the title of our sermon this morning is that faith on fire is unashamed. Faith on fire is a faith that is unashamed. And what we need to ask ourselves this morning, what we're going to seek to Uh, figure out in this this sermon is, what does it mean to be unashamed for the gospel? What does it mean to live life unashamed for Christ? I think a few passages may come to mind uh, in, in, in your memory of Luke 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me And of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this idea of shame and and unashamed, right? These These are ideas that have already been picked up in Scripture. And we're going to see that Paul, in his farewell address, feels the need to bring up this idea of being unashamed for the ministry of the gospel. Well, first thing I want to point out is some signs of shame. In particular, a a, a sign of shame is inheriting a love for what is good without the tendency to pursue it. Okay, so it's developing a love for what is good, but not pursuing that. 
And when the world does this, it's it kind of has a, a new uh, phrase that has been passed wrong called virtue signaling. It's this facade of having a virtuous perspective by merely showing disgust or favor for a certain ethical or political idea. That's virtue signaling. I I have uh, a disgust for this idea and I have favor for this idea without really uh, a tendency to pursue it. And we, we do this in the church as well. Right, the church has been given the light of the gospel, and at times it suffices that we merely vocalize this love for the gospel rather than pursue its proclamation. We express a love for the gospel without really pursuing a life of that gospel lived out, uh, whether that's privately or publicly. We tend to proclaim the victory of the gospel instead of striving to see that victory actually come to fruition and, and, and realized. So we say Jesus had victory on the cross. There's the, Jesus is victorious. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And we say that, but we don't live in this world as if that were true. We don't seek to expand that kingdom The church has also developed a gospel morality that can be easily and readily expressed, but hardly pursued. So this is the kind of virtue signaling that we need to be aware of in the church. Oh, my wife just informed me that my collar was up like that. You're on the the wrong side, but Michelle saw it. Thank you. No one would have even heard what I said all morning. They'd be like, this guy fixed his collar here. (laughs) But the, the, the virtue signaling that's the temptation within the church is to say the right things about Jesus, right? To say the right things about the gospel when we're in our holy huddles, when we're together in the oasis, right? In the, these four walls, when we're here on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, we can say the right things. But the, the question is, are we ashamed to live that out when we are out in the world? It's always easier to give in to the temptation to float downstream, right? It's, it's always easier to go with the flow, with the world, to, 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 to blend in, right? It's always harder to swim against the current, especially when that current could be your friends, or your family, or media, or Hollywood, or government. The world has to virtue signal. Right? The world has to, to put on this facade. They, the world thrives on hypocrisy because deep down the world is ashamed of itself. We, uh, apart from Christ, have had to put on a mask of hypocrisy because deep down we know we are wrong. 
The world knows it does not have the answers. The world knows it cannot satisfy. It cannot be consistent. It loves wickedness and not what is good. The world knows, and those who aren't saved, they know deep down that they have rebelled against God, but they have suppressed that truth in their own unrighteousness. So in order to survive with any kind of dignity, in order to protect itself from shame, it must change the rules. The world and the people of the world have to change the rules because they cannot survive with this kind of shame. So the rule changes where good is called evil and evil is then called good. And anyone who challenges this is seen as an enemy to this sort of artificial peace and tranquility and these pseudo laws of morality and virtue that the world and the devil have co-conspired to create. In other words, the only way for the world to function apart from God is to change the rules of the game. If it doesn't change the rules of the game, then it cannot survive because it knows that what it's doing is evil and wicked and rebellious and wrong. And so instead, we change the rules, we suppress what is true, and we say what is good is actually evil, and what is evil is actually good. The world has to create something to cover itself. It's rebellion its hatred of the Lord, its utter nakedness. And so it weaves together fig leaves of justice and morality and virtue, but the Lord sees right through it. And so should the church. See, we as the church, we, we, this is not a, a, a position of uh, arrogance, right? We, we are no better than the world. We had to be saved out of the world. But now that we are, we should not want to be like the world. We, don't, we shouldn't want to fall into the same trap of creating an artificial peace in order to keep ourselves safe. But unfortunately, in our own quest for tranquility with the world, we ended up playing by their rules as well. We ended up falling into their game and, and needing to play on their terms. So we, we tend to think on, in worldly terms. Well, you don't think that's loving? Well, then I won't say a word. You say it's Western Christianity's fault for the world's problems? Well, then it must be so. You cry victim? Then I must grant empathy. Whatever that word even means anymore now. And not yet. Someday, I I hope this never happens, but if we continue with this direction, then you say, keep my religious views to myself and obey the state, well, then hail Caesar. What is being ashamed of the gospel if, if not striving to resemble the very thing that hates the gospel in order to maintain peace? This is not being a peacemaker like Jesus spoke about. This is a peacekeeper So the examining question for us this morning that we have to ask ourselves is, have we become ashamed of the gospel? Have I become ashamed of the gospel truth, the good news, what Christ has done, who Christ is, who I am now in Christ? 
we have to examine that in ourselves. And uh, the, the question that we seek to answer this morning, as I said in the beginning, is how does faith on fire keep us unashamed of the gospel? Well, that brings us into our passage. So let me read it for us this morning, and then I will pray. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I am appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I, have, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom were Phygelos, Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered in Ephesus. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. For some reason, I copied and pasted a verse twice, but... Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I lift this time to you up now, God, that it would be a a time where we'd be influenced by your word, changed by it, Lord. I pray, God, that you would use me as an instrument to proclaim the gospel to encourage the brothers and sisters here that the Holy Spirit would do an amazing work knowing that your word does not return void. I thank you, Lord, that you use a flawed and weak man like myself have the ministry that I do here at the Oasis Church in Aurora, Illinois. I pray, Lord, that my heart would never stray from desiring to please you and that you would give me the courage, the love, the humility, and the boldness, Lord, preach faithfully this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So faith on fire. Right, this faith on fire that is unashamed. We're going to break it down into three uh, different sections. The first one is we need to embrace 
that suffering for Christ is honorable. If we are going to be unashamed of the gospel, we must embrace the fact that suffering for Christ is honorable. This is where it starts in verse 8. Therefore, based on this new life that you have been promised in Christ and this spirit, this disposition, right, that Paul was just talking about in the previous verses, right, we have no longer been given a spirit of fear or cowardice, but instead of of courage and of love and of self-control. Because of this, Paul's saying, because you've been given this, you cannot be ashamed of the gospel. So Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. See, Timothy, it seems, it's possible that Timothy struggled with fear. We have to remember, Timothy is not a, a, a perfect individual. Like Paul, he had his struggles. Like Peter, he had his struggles. Like you, like, like me, we have our struggles. And for Timothy, it may have been that he struggled with fear. He struggled with having courage. And it may have been because of his age. It may have been because he was in ministry at a young age. And there was older men there. Men that may have been, uh, seemed wiser or seemed to have uh, a little bit more influence on the church than he did. So maybe he struggled with this fear. Or maybe Paul's words are even more transcendent than that. And he's saying, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord because he knows that's going to be the struggle for all of us. So Paul exhorts him not to have fear, but have courage. See, we have to recognize that our fear... Okay, when we have fear in ministering the gospel in the face of opposition, when, when we allow that fear to, to rule and to win out, that's, that's a sign of shame. Fear and shame, though, it, it cannot stop us from spreading the gospel. It cannot stop us from preaching the gospel. It cannot stop us from, from living that gospel life out. So do not be ashamed of the gospel. When you, when you are living this life out and you feel this fear bubbling up inside you, recognize, recognize that, that, that this is a cause for shame. Your fear is, is, is trying to create you to be ashamed of the gospel. And in those times, it's important to recognize that's not what you've been given. That's not the life, that's not the spirit you've been given. You have not been given a spirit of fear. You've been given a spirit of courage, love, and self-control. Paul says, do not be afraid or ashamed, excuse me, of the testimony about our Lord. And then he says, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul suffers, he says, because he was appointed to suffer. Don't share in the suffering of the gospel. And then he, Paul breaks into this doxology where he says, uh, by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We don't need to be ashamed. 
Paul just laid out the truth right here. This is the gospel. You have been, you have been shown life and immortality. It's been brought to life. You have been changed by it. You have been called. And not because of anything that you have to offer. You have been called because it's the work of God for his own purpose and grace. And he called you before the ages began. This is grace upon grace upon grace poured out on you because of his favor and love and his own purpose for you. I mean, that's the only way this works. Think about your life. Think about the rebellion and the blasphemy and the adultery and the hatred of your life, the rebellion that you lived against the Lord. And yet, knowing all of that, before the foundation of the world, Christ chose you, chose to die for you, knowing all the times that you would speak ill against him, knowing all the times that you would disobey his commands, knowing all the times that you would feel ashamed of him. And yet he chose you. And not because you had much of anything to offer. Right? That's what he says here. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. And that's the beauty of, of, of the gospel. The, 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 you look at the, the history of the men and, and women that God has been so delighted to use for his glory, and they're not, by the world's standards, very great or, or skilled. God is pleased to use weak men and women for his purposes because he's the one who makes them strong. So then why? Why would Timothy be ashamed of Paul? Right? Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Also, don't be ashamed of me, a prisoner for the gospel. Why would Timothy be ashamed of Paul? Well, this kind of goes back to the beginning of our sermon here, which is when we try to measure divine things by human reason, we become ashamed of that divine economy. Let me say that again. When we try to measure the things of God and the work of God through our flesh and through human reason, we will be ashamed of the work of God because it won't make sense. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are beyond our ways. He does not work according to our standard of what we think looks good and what we think is shameful. He works according to his standard. So Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, though I am a prisoner for the gospel, because... This is my holy calling. And Paul considers it an honor to be a prisoner and to suffer for the gospel, which is why Paul then says, but share in suffering. Paul calls on Timothy to suffer, have courage to suffer for the gospel. We must not enter into this ministry of the gospel without being ready for the suffering that comes with it. 
There's internal suffering when it comes to denying self, right? Taking up our cross daily, putting on the new man and putting off the old. But there's also, in a very real sense, suffering that takes place from others who do not like the gospel that we have been called to live out and share. This is why we are told to count the cost. This is why also one of my favorite passages is in Joshua, where he says, choose this day whom you will serve. And Israel responds with, we will serve the Lord. And nowadays, our response would be, amen, all right, brother, great. But that's not the response of Joshua. Joshua's response is basically, hold on a second. Do you realize the covenant you are entering into? Have you counted the cost? When we decide to take up citizenship in heaven, it makes us enemies of the world. And Paul says, But I am not ashamed. Right? He sees this suffering as honorable. So the question we have to ask is, where does Paul's courage come from? From where does Paul get this incredible boldness that many of us, we read the word today and we look and we say, wow, I mean, Paul, he's a man among men, it seems like, with this boldness and this courage for the gospel. Well, Paul says, I, I, Paul finds his courage from his faith. That's what he says in our uh, passage this morning. From faith. His courage is not just his ability to, to, to buck up. And his boldness comes from the power of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 8. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find boldness to be unashamed for the ministry to which Christ has called us because it's not our ministry. It's Christ's. Why can I be bold to minister the gospel to a lost world and endure suffering? Because the ministry is the ministry of my King. It's the call of, the, of, of my king on my life. It's not mine. I didn't make it up. I didn't decide to do it. Christ called me to it. It's his. And so what Paul is saying is trust in the fact that because he has called you to it, he will empower you to do what he has called you to do. So we are not ill-equipped or unprepared, or lacking resources, because Christ is our resource. 
Now, of course, this, we can still seek help and counsel from outside, uh, you know, the local church setting, from other believers being trained and encouraged. It's not isolationism. But we have to trust that he has equipped the oasis. He has brought you to the oasis for a purpose. He has given us here at the Oasis, our context for ministry. He has given us our leadership. He has given us our members. And he has promised he will always be faithful. So be bold and have courage for the ministry that Christ is calling each and every one of us to because he is the one who is faithful. And our trust and hope and, and power is in that faithfulness, right? That his, his promised life, as we saw earlier. And make no mistake, God has given you a ministry. Make disciples. Preach the gospel to every creature. Care for the widows and orphans. Serve the church in all the ways that the Lord has gifted you. He has given you your context. Aurora, Illinois. Your work your family, your friends, the streets of our city, the poor, the hungry, the drunkard. He has given you the oasis to train you, to guide you, to hold you accountable. And now you must be bold and unashamed to do it. And the first step in being unashamed is by embracing the fact that if you suffer for the gospel, it is a place of honor to do so. John Calvin said, he who is armed with the power of God will not tremble at the noise raised by the world, but will reckon it honorable that wicked men mark him with disgrace. So embrace that suffering is honorable. And if you suffer for the gospel, it is because the Lord has appointed you to do so. Then in verse 13 and 14, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Okay, so the next way to to have this faith on fire that is unashamed of the gospel is to guard the good deposit. If we are going to be unashamed for the gospel, we must guard the truth of God's word. I was in a conversation just recently with with, uh, a man who who claimed to be a Christian, and he had a big heart, but was led astray by so many ideas not in the Bible. And when I would bring these up, he said, well, I only read the Bible. I'm not interested in what man has to say about the Bible. And then very quickly after that said, but I don't understand what Revelation's about, so I don't read that. It's too confusing. And then he said he's not sure if he should use the Bible when when reaching out to the lost. But the end result is that he has a non-biblical view of so many areas of life, including what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. And he did not seem to understand certain elements of the gospel, and he didn't seem to want to listen. And in the end, when this conversation kept going and I kept bringing us back to the Word of God, he would respond with, well, you're just, you're splitting hairs. We cannot bend the truth of Scripture. 
The reality of the authority of God's word must be submitted to in every area of our life. And we have been called to guard that, right? To, to guard the truth of God's word. We, we, we need to understand that God's word is inerrant, right? It's, it's, it's inspired. It's, it's from the mouth of God himself, perfect and, and holy. But I think that's kind of the easy part. The harder part is this next one, which is, it's also sufficient. God's word is inerrant. It's also sufficient. It is living and active. And its usefulness transcends time and culture. And this is where I see a lot of Christians, they balk. Right? They believe God's word is true, but they're not so sure if it's sufficient. It allows them to think they're being biblical when in reality they're not. If Scripture is not sufficient, then it cannot meet the needs, your needs, here and now. And what happens is, Scripture becomes true, but impractical. Right? It, it, it's breathed out from the mouth of God. It, it's definitely true. It's accurate. But it's not practical. And so when faced with the, faced with the problems of life... We will not seek Scripture because it's impractical. Therefore, we seek after the world. So when someone says, well, Scripture does not speak about this or that, I tell you, yes, it does. We just haven't searched deep enough. I think the problem with many of us nowadays is we, we, we don't seek the word enough with, with ardent prayer and with, with true study and deep meditation. And so it's no wonder that God seems silent in so many areas of, of life and so impractical because we're not really doing the work to hear him speak. We don't put in the proper, proper effort to, to actually listen so, yes, we need to guard inerrancy outside the church, but inside the church, we need to guard sufficiency. We need to recognize that it's the Word of God that changes hearts, right? Not the clever ideas of men. We don't need bells and whistles to minister to people. We need faithful men and faithful women who are unashamed of what the Word of God says and will not bend for fear of failure or rejection. And this does not mean that we use God's Word as a hammer where every person is a nail. Right? The Bible is called a sword, but the warrior untrained in how to properly use his weapon will just put himself and everybody around him in danger. Boldness with God's word is not at odds with humility and gentleness. So when you minister to somebody with the word of God, you must meet them where they are. Talk to them, love on them, encourage them, and at the same time, always bringing them back to the truth of God's word. This is our authority. And we can never bend on the truth of that authority, on the truth of God's word, for the sake of how that, make, make, how that might make somebody feel. I'm not concerned with making your feelings align and submit uh, 
I'm going to rephrase that. (laughs) I am more concerned with making your feelings align and submit to the Word of God than I am with God bowing down to your feelings. So when we handle the Word of God in this way, people will be saved. Christians will be corrected and and trained in righteousness. And when opposition does come, we can stand unashamed. We can stand unashamed because we know that we have, with a good heart and, and, and with genuineness, handled the Word of God well. We have guarded the truth of Scripture. Lastly, Paul writes, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So the last key to having a faith on fire that is unashamed of the gospel is to be in good company. Be in good company. If we are going to be unashamed of the gospel, we must surround ourselves with the right people. I heard a sermon and... um, this preacher was talking about a conversation that he had with a man. And this man was telling how much he loved his wife. I would die for my wife. I would go to battle against a thousand men for her. Nothing could keep me from protecting her and loving her with with such fire and passion. And the preacher responded, but will you do the dishes? See, I think a lot of times when we think about suffering for the Lord, we want to jump to serving Him on the forest mission fields, right? If if someone put a gun to my head and said, trust it, you know, say you don't believe in Jesus or I'll kill you, and we would say, no, I believe in Jesus. I would die for Jesus. But would you do the dishes? Can you, can you love Jesus in the most basic ways first? Can you love Jesus by submitting your life to him in the little areas of your life? The reason I bring that up is because a lot of Christians, they talk a big game. But in the end... When the times get tough, the faithless will flee. These two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, Paul uses them as examples of those who, they probably talked a big game here. And then when things got tough, they deserted Paul. Beware of cowards. They will leave in tough times. And then what will end up happening is they will slander you to cover their own shame. This is what happens 
Paul has to deal with this. People who abandon Paul in ministry, and then in order to cover their shame of, of being cowards and abandoning, they have to talk a big game against Paul. Well, Paul's not a good apostle. Paul's a false apostle. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. This is what, this is what uh, we in the church, I mean, have to struggle with as well. They have, people have to make up a reason for why they leave. People have to make up a reason for why, whether they're offended because they're confronted on sin, or they felt slighted, or they just didn't have the courage to stick around, they have to come up with an excuse, and the excuse has to be, someone else is the problem. And it usually is an attempt to shame those who are faithful. And this perhaps is why Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed that I am in prison. Do not be ashamed of my ministry. Though you may hear other people talking falsely about me and slandering my name, do not be ashamed that you are in ministry with me, right? That your name is tied to mine. So we must wisely choose who we surround ourselves with. Paul had to deal with desertion, right? That's why he compares these two men who fled to Onesiphorus, who was faithful and loyal, and actually seeking Paul out in Rome. And fearless friends for ministry will be those who are already fearless for Christ before things get rough. Let's be honest. We've said this before. We have it easy in this country, right? The the bulk of our issue right now is, is, you know, the government is asking us not to gather. Like that's, and, and we're like, well, this is hardship. Okay, well, if we can't remain fearless in this, then we certainly won't remain fearless when real trials come. If we can't remain fearless um, in being able to publicly proclaim and live out the gospel in these small areas of our lives, then we will not be ready when hard times come for real suffering, genuine suffering. So we need to make sure that we have people around us who will encourage us, who will um, admonish us in the word, who will train us in righteousness. We need people around us who have faith on fire. Those who will be courageous in the spiritual battles of life. Once more into the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In peace there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of a tiger. Stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard favored rage. The calling of God for the spiritual battles of life are tough and they can be terrifying. And our fair nature tells us to stay away from the battle. Stay at home. But being surrounded by those with the same hope and convictions will help give us the courage to continue into battle and we likewise do the same for them. 
once more unto the breach, dear friends. We are in this together. It's a lot easier to go into battle side by side with a friend than to go alone, right? Those who are all in for the gospel of Christ are loyal to each other because they are first totally loyal to the Lord. Some of my deepest brothers that I, ha- that I have met over the years are those relationships that have developed on the battlefield of ministry. My close friends aren't just because I have friends from seminary. My close friends aren't just the friends that I grew up with. My closest relationships are those who have taken up their cross. Those who who, who have been bold in the truth and understand that suffering can come with it. The ones that I evangelize with, the ones that I pastor with, the the ones that I serve together here at the Oasis with, these are the closest bonds I have. Why? Because we've been in battle together. Christ is our highest priority. So there's a trust and a deepness that that I don't have with people that I haven't been in, in, in battle with, that I haven't been in ministry with. I pray that, that you find people in your lives, and, you, and if you, don't, you can't think of any, ask the Lord to, to bring people in your lives who, who are that same way, who are going to encourage you in that way. So, in conclusion, right, faith on fire is faith that is unashamed for the gospel. It embraces suffering for the gospel. It stands firm on the foundation of God's word. And it surrounds itself with others who do the same. Let's pray. Lord, there is a lot of text to cover this morning, and so I do pray that it was clear that the focus of of our passage and, and our time was to recognize what it means and what it takes to be unashamed for the gospel, Lord. I pray that each and every one of us, in the context of life where you have put us, would be unashamed for the gospel. We don't need to go looking for mission fields when you have given us a mission field already. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in the places that you have called us, that we would be bold for Christ. And I pray that as we continue in this spiritual battle of life where we are trying to win the lost to salvation and trying to do battle with our flesh and and with the principalities of this world that are trying to keep us away from you, Lord, and trying to keep us in our sin and, and, and keep us away from the battle, God, I pray, I pray, that we at the Oasis would band together with deep closeness and loyalty to one another because we all have the same desire and focus in mind and that is pursuing our Lord Jesus Christ above everything else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.